0: Hi, I'm Sarah Fisk, Life Coach with Microbe Formulas. This series will cover mental health. If you struggle with mental health issues, please be aware that listening to this episode could be a trigger for you. Please contact your mental health provider if you're in need of mental health support. Thanks for listening.
1: A podcast about life. I mean, that's a struggle, I think, with every single day. Are we good enough? Everything it can throw at you. The only person that can make us happy is ourselves.
0: Real people talking about life's
1: real issues. Oh, yeah, there you go. This (laughs) is Intentionally Disruptive with Shauna McNeil. The series this month is called No Perfect People Allowed. We are talking all things mental health. Mental Health Awareness Month, of course, coming up next month. So far, we've talked about anxiety and depression. This is episode number three of the No Perfect People Allowed series, and we're calling it Triggered. Joining the podcast this week is my dear friend, Rachel, and the topic is PTSD. Welcome to the podcast. I know you, this is nerve wracking. Very. It's like you and I have had many discussions about this but not with two microphones. Yeah, it makes it
2: very like right in your face. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate
1: you coming on sharing your story because I know I I don't know all of it, but I know some of it. And I just really appreciate you being here and and sharing that with everyone. And I know the main focus of this and the podcast in general is just to connect with everyone out there listening um, who may know someone struggling with PTSD and maybe it could help someone. And that's what the goal is.
2: That's, like, the main reason I agreed to it anyway is it's, like, I think there's, like, a Brene Brown quote about, like, your story can be somebody else's survival guide. Like, it's something that I've been somewhat open with with people over the years. And I just knew eventually at one point that I I did want to be very open and upfront about the entire thing just because people only get, beats like, pieces, bits and pieces of it, like... My family, this will be a very earth-shattering thing for my family and some of my friends because I've never talked about any of this with them. Please don't make a big deal about it. Like, just so you know. And I'm sure we'll have people that will come up to them and mention it, you know. So it's just kind of a, we'll see what happens. Well, and
1: I want to thank you for something, too, before we get into everything. Um, You know, we... We've talked about some serious stuff this month just with the series in general it's Mm -hmm. all about mental health and you brought up the suggestion about putting a trigger warning now before this episode started you heard sarah fisk do our trigger warning and i want to remind everyone so that was rachel's idea to to add that and i just i appreciate that suggestion because we definitely took that seriously and put it into place but again you know if you are struggling today maybe You know, you're, you're like, today's one of those days where you're easily triggered. Um, This probably isn't the podcast for you to listen to today, maybe another day, but we just want to be, give you that warning, just depending on where you are um, in your, in your mental headspace today. So what is PTSD? It stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a psychiatric disorder that may occur in people who have experienced or witnessed a traumatic event. Rachel, I love this about you because you're so hyper-organized and you, That's trauma. Uh, trauma, right. <laughs> trauma created OCD. I feel all of that because look at, look at everything. Look at the podcast <laughs> post-its and the, everything's just so like, you know, organized. And I look over at your folders and your papers and you have like differentiated the two because PTSD, that's just the general definition, but you have it broken down into two different categories and share that.
2: Uh, so with PTSD, and a lot of times people are, you know, relate that to war. They always think of like war veterans and war heroes when they hear that. Yeah, Um, With very generalized, there's PTSD, which is more of a singular traumatic event that's happened to you. So either, yes, war, um, being like in a really bad natural disaster, a fire, like being kidnapped, obviously very traumatic. It's more of like a singular situation, whereas the newer definition that I don't, um, as of right now, I don't know if it's actually officially recognized yet Um, is CPTSD or relational trauma. And that's more of an ongoing trauma. Um, So like with that's more for like people who are bullied, like harassment, stalking victims. It's a lot more of that over periods of time, things have just piled on you and you've been put in a lot of different situations. And so it's kind of like an ongoing, mostly children who've had like horrific child abuse or Mm -hmm. had a lot of issues with caregivers growing up tend to have more of that relational trauma because your very foundation as a kid is the people who are supposed to protect you and keep you safe are the source of danger. Yeah. And so it's kind of that ongoing, like, you've never left a fight or flight ever. You're just constantly having things happen to you over time.
1: And that's the category you fall into. And that's the category Mm -hmm. I fall into. You were clinically diagnosed at what age?
2: Oh, October 2018 is like, was my official like diagnosis when I first got put into therapy. And that would have been, um, so I was 23 when I was first diagnosed.
1: Yeah, I think um, I was 30, 31, because I got misdiagnosed. Well, I have anxiety and I have depression, all those things, but those all fall fall under the PTSD category. But but I fall into the same category as you, and it's just this ongoing, this fight or flight. So let's talk, let's go from the, let's start from the beginning and, and start with how your PTSD developed
2: depression and anxiety run in my family, like very long history on both sides of the family. And so even like in high school and up to that point, I'd had pretty bad depression and really severe anxiety. Like even going back as far as like, I was like five or six. And I remember having feelings of, you need to appreciate this moment that you're in right now because it's not going to last and you're going to get older and you're going to wish that you would appreciate this time more. That's a five-year-old. Yeah. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> that's great. And I didn't know that wasn't normal either. I just, that was, that was your norm. No, I just really always was so anxious about losing time and um, just really struggled with depression on and off. And I just thought, okay, that's just runs in the family. That's fine. It's like not fine, but you know, it's hereditary. And so that was already a bit of my reality. And so I The first thing that happened really like in 2013, I was a senior in high school, that's when I graduated. And um, I was in my first real serious relationship. It's like serious with quotation marks as serious as like, you know, a high school relationship can be. But it's
1: everything at the time.
2: I had such a low like self-esteem and part of that was like the depression. And so someone like paid interest in me and he was a cute guy, like super cute guy, really funny. And so I was so flattered that somebody actually like wanted me and thought I was actually like desirable. And uh, he was crazy later like his family dysfunction function was very oh they were so dysfunctional um had a lot of issues a lot of things that they thought were normal which looking back now like i'm like that so many red flags not normal yeah and like his dad was super creepy like his dad always made comments about my body and like we'd go over for family dinner and he'd always talk about how i was this guy's favorite he was i was the favorite girlfriend that Ugh. he's had because I had bigger boobs than all the rest of the girls he had dated. And so, like, super creepy things that I was uncomfortable with, but I just try to laugh off. It's like, okay. Yeah. And they were very, very obsessed about food, like, and not in a very healthy way. And I was starting to struggle already. It was the start of my eating disorder. And a pretty unhealthy relationship with food anyway, and it made it worse being around them because they were so conscious about anything that they ate and were so worried about how they looked all the time. And so then being with that totally brought out more of my eating disorder and like I wouldn't eat for like all day long and he would try to make me eat something. He's like, well, you need to eat something that's good for you. So he would take me out at lunch to try to get me to eat something but at the restaurant like that we're at or like fast food or wherever we're at he would look at other girls that were ordering things and he's like oh my gosh I can't believe she's eating that she's so fat and they were skinnier than me yeah like these are girls that were I would kill to have had their bodies and so I would look at that and he's calling them fat I'm like okay but like you you took me here to eat like what the hell and so that's like kind of what started off that whole thing, and he had a very unhealthy relationship with his mom, very, like, very dysfunctional, like, very codependent relationship, and she made a bunch of choices that I definitely did not agree with for their family, and I was a little vocal about how I didn't think that was okay, and she went around and, like, like slandered my name. Like, completely Oh, yeah. Yeah. For, like, an 18-year-old. And they blamed me. He was a really bad porn addict. And he was very into, like, a lot more, like, the very dark, like, abusive stuff. And that's what he enjoyed. And that's what he would try to, like, live out in the relationship. And, like, we never, we didn't have sex. We didn't sleep together. But, like, he still would be very pushy. And aggressive and he liked being told no for things and when he did start slipping up and making other poor choices in other areas of his life his parents blamed me for it and they of said course. I was the bad influence and that it was my fault I was so angry about it so at that point I was like no like okay whatever you can go on and do like your smear campaigns you can whatever you want but at first it's like your son's the one who like technically kind of like abused me and emotionally abused me so like your kid's the one that's messed up but whatever so you
1: weren't engaged to this guy no this this wasn't the guy you're engaged to
2: no so that was right after him oh gotcha so one relationship i compared i met a guy when i was freshman and i just got out of that relationship freshman in college and he was 20 Six, I think. So there's kind of a significant age gap there, but compared, he seemed like such a nice guy. Like when you're used to kind of like trashy, immature, like the previous guy I was with, um, this guy seemed so much better. Cause that's yeah. my, that might was my first relationship. That's my my bar is set pretty low. <laughs> my standards yeah. are pretty low about what's good behavior, and so compared, he seemed great. And we went to BYU Idaho, and so even though I kept saying I didn't really want to be in another relationship, it just kind of happened. And I enjoyed the the companionship and it was somebody that gave me attention and made me feel better. And I had so many emotional problems that were starting to come up. My mental health was really starting to take a turn for the worst. And I was having lots of moments. Like I, I started thinking that maybe I must like be bipolar. I must be like self-diagnosing because I would have such insane mood swings. Like it Mm -hmm. would, I would be totally fine, super happy one day, have a conversation and then I could wake up the next morning and just absolutely want to just end it all. Like life is horrible. I can't take this. I can't handle this anymore. Like such intense depression and then give it 24 hours and I'd be fine again.
1: And that's, again, that's, that's some of the, the symptoms of PTSD is agitation, irritability, hostility, uh, self-destructive yeah. behavior social isolation i mean those are just some of the but like you said the irritability
2: yeah and, and, and a swings. lot of it was was changes too i mean like i i was pretty close with my family and i had my whole life and it was my safe comfortable little bubble i mean going to college for the first time it's a really big life change yeah and i just was head over heels for him i thought he was just the bee's knees and so i he was kind of pushing talking marriage and I was like no no like we'll we'll just wait it was toward the end of a semester is when we first kind of became like more serious and so I didn't really ever want to be one of those girls that got married like meeting engaged married within six months of knowing somebody I didn't want that and so I was like no we'll just wait and so our plan was it was the end of winter semester I was going to go home and um, we would just keep dating and then over the summer i would work save up money and we would just get married in the fall when i got back we could make our engagement official i spent all summer on pinterest and putting together like a wedding board and showing my poor mom and she did not like him they didn't like him at all she just had such a bad feeling about him but i'm very stubborn and so if you tell me no i'm like watch me (laughs) so by the end of summer when we planned on making it like the Facebook official status I went from like heck yeah let's do this thing to having some reservations because I was so young and it was such a huge commitment and in my mind like I don't want to ever get divorced and so I was so young that then and I'm in college like I just barely finished like my first year of college so I'm like well I don't want to miss out on like the college experience and I really haven't dated anybody else but this first guy that I was with that was you know that's not a real experience. So I'm like, well, okay. So I talked to him about it and I was like, well, you know, I still want to marry you, but I think I want to wait and we'll start dating other people. I want to go on dates with other people. Like, let's just kind of take a step back. Like, I kind of want to still like be open to other dates. So that way, if I make the choice that it's going to be you, I can feel very confident that you're the one for me because I have other experience to base it off of. Right. And know what I like and dislike. And he didn't like it, but he was like, okay. So it went from, I think I, I want to date other people, but still date you too. I don't want to date you anymore. I don't want to see you anymore. How quickly did that like, happen? Like not even a month. It was oh, like, yeah. like before I even went. Yeah. So by the time I went to school, I was no contact with him. Like we're done. And he did not take it well. And that's when kind of more of his true side came out for things he knew when I was supposed to move into my apartment my new apartment for that semester and I didn't tell him where I lived but he figured it out and once I figured out he kind of knew what general area I was at because he saw me walking home from class yeah oh yeah and so I was like well you know where I live like we can still be friends this was my first time of like we can be friends yeah right like this will work you're so important to me we can make a friendship work right because i thought that you could that you could still be friends after breaking up with somebody and he's like yeah that's fine and uh no it was not fine i will never forget we went to a big like not even a really big it's rexburg it can't be that big but they would do like these little mini concerts and like carnivals and little fairs but they would block it down and they would do this huge like welcome back to college like parties out there and so we went down there together. I'm like, hey, we can go together. Like, this is a great first let's friends like night out. And I remember we were watching this girl sing, and um, I looked over at him, and he was completely like glossy-eyed, like not in reality. And so I said his name, and I I like touched his shoulder, and we'll just call him. Oh, I don't even know what to call him joe we can call him joe yeah (laughs) i'm trying yeah we'll call him joe
1: joe's fine and so
2: (laughs) i'm like joe joe and he didn't say anything to me and so i like grabbed his shoulder and i kind of shook and i was like joe and then he slowly turned and like looked at me and it was like blank like there was nothing there and then i I, he kind of like you could see him like snap out of it and then look at me he's like what and i was like okay that was weird. I think you're just tired. <laughs> That's weird. Let's yeah. go home. And um, the next day, I went. He got a dog. And anybody that knows me, I'm very dog obsessed. Yeah. So he got a dog, and of course, I'm like, well, I was gonna stop talking to you and kind of back off a little bit because that weirded me out. But you have a dog, so like, I want to see your dog. <laughs> and so this dog reeled me in, and so he picked me up to go grocery shopping, and then we'd meet his dog his mom called him while we were at the grocery store to ask him to pick her up something because he still lived with his mom. Also big red, red flag. flag that I should have been aware of. And he lost his mind when he hung up with her. He started calling her like bunch of words that I'd get bleeped out if yeah. I said, yeah. um, and like how big of a bitch she was. I'm like, this is your mom. And it was completely different personality. Like, and we had to pick up a light bulb that's what she wanted was a light bulb oh, no. and he went he was unhinged over how dare she ask him to pick him up something and she can't do it herself i mean this whole thing and i didn't say anything and we walked back out to the car and he opened my car door at least and that was nice but like and then he got in the car and i was like you know i Don't i just want to go dog. home <laughs> yeah i was like i want to go home and he's like, no, you're going to meet my dog. I'm like, no, that's OK. Like, maybe some other time, like, you know, can you want to just take me home? And he locks the car door and he's like, no, you're going to meet my f- dog. <gasps> and I was like, OK. <laughs> and so then I knew him. I'm like, just be nice. We're going to just, just be, get through this. We're just going to be super nice because he's obviously a little unhinged. We'll be nice. I'll meet the dog. I will go home and I will never talk to him again. And. Once I got home, I texted him. I said, hey, this whole like we're going to be friends thing, not going to be a thing anymore. I said that I can't do that. I'm not comfortable around you. That was so uncalled for. This is not okay. And he lost his with me. And he called me over and over and over again in just the span of one hour. I had like 50 missed calls from him. Um, But I just ignored all the calls and I text him like, dude, you got to stop, like stop calling me. And he's like, well, can we just talk about it? Can we just talk about it one more time? And he had pulled it a few times before in the relationship. Like, well, can we just talk? Can we just talk it out? Like, can we talk this out? I'm like, no, because what happens is I agree. And we start trying to talk it out so you can still be my friend. And then by the end of it, you're calling me a bitch and how I'm a horrible person and flipping it on me. It's like, we're we're done talking. And now he's getting violent by like I mean, he's yeah. super agitated. Yeah. So I'm like, no, we're done. I put my phone down. I went to take a shower and I'm like 10 minutes tops. I'm back and I had eight missed calls, eight missed voicemails from him. And they went from like crying to I am so sorry I didn't mean it. I, I'm sorry. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I just don't want to lose you. I'm going through a really hard time. And all these excuses, voicemail after voicemail. And I'm kind of listening to them. And he's becoming like crying, like sobbing by the last voicemail. Like, I can't be alone right now. I'm going to hurt myself. Oh, like, gosh. that. he pulled that card. Like, I can't do this. Like, I'm terrified. And I, and I recognize he probably was having a panic attack now, looking back, like the symptoms he was having, like, for it just absolute meltdown and then the last message i listened to and it was like switch cold he's like wow i thought that you were the one person that would really care about me turns out i was wrong and you're just a b-. he's like so you never cared about me at all so like, wow. it's, is, it
1: doesn't sound like he had an anxiety attack. It sounds like he was just putting on a show for you to get your attention. Honestly,
2: I, I don't think it was even a show. Like legitimately, like being around him in person, like he had some actual serious issues going on. you was saying put
1: on a show that that's having issues. Oh, I mean, like, like yeah, putting yeah,
2: a show. Like he genuinely like was a mess. Like something was not. Did you get a restraining was not order? Right, I almost did. So I I should have, um, because and his mom, he lied to his mom. And told them that, like, I cheated on him and uh, that's why we broke up and that I was awful and I actually never wanted to be with him. Like, this whole story. So she hated me and I texted her because I still had her number. And I said, Hey, I just want you to be aware that Joe called me and he's texting me saying that he wants to hurt himself. And I just wanted you to be aware. I know you don't like me. That's fine, but I wanted you to be aware. And um, she's like, Okay, thanks. And then that was didn't it. Didn't respond to me. And then he told me, like, he's like, No, you're then. <laughs> Day later, he's like, well, you're going to talk to me. I'm gonna, you're going to talk to me one last time, one last time. And so he showed up in my apartment, and I had told all the girls I lived with, said if anyone's here, because they all had seen him at least once, said do not open the door. Don't let him inside the house. If he's here, you let me know. If I am not here, you call the cops. But uh, obviously, yeah, marriage didn't work out. <laughs> didn't get married. So you have two back-to-back emotionally, <laughs> emotionally,
1: emotionally <laughs> abusive relationships, and then shortly after that, you moved to Arizona.
2: Yeah, I had, um, I came home, and this is bad. This is, so I actually started dating somebody else. It was my best friend from college, and he had been in love with me the entire time that we were at school together, and everybody knew it. He told me he was in love with me, and I just always said, no, not ready for a relationship, and then I got with Joe, and then we started dating not long after that, and he, great guy, sweetest guy ever, actually, like, a really amazing, amazing person, His family's great. Friends are great. Like that actually was really good. So we started dating and um, he was getting ready to go on a mission for our church. And so we already knew like it's two years, typically for men, it's two years long for the mission. I thought about going on one and very long story short, that didn't happen. It was kind of a burst of flames, like very stressful trying to figure that out. And I decided I'm not going to go. And that's when I moved to Arizona because I didn't want to be in Idaho anymore and so I was like, nope, I'm done. Like, this is the solution is I'm gonna leave. If I leave, all my problems will stay in Boise and I can go live somewhere uh, else, start yeah. over. Nobody knows me, nobody knows anything. I can just completely like reinvent myself. Oh, I get it. I moved 20, 22 times
1: in like 10 years. So I completely get that. And so you moved to Arizona. Obviously you had a pretty traumatic event happen in Arizona.
2: Yeah, I wasn't there for super long. The place that I worked at, There was a coworker that I had there who we found out later actually had a warrant out for his arrest. We didn't know that at the time. Um, He did not treat the other girls that worked there very well. He was a friend of the people who owned... The business that i was working at and i know that some of the girls had mentioned to management that he was like sexually harassing them in the workplace yeah. they had to have known and been aware of it because i know some of the girls personally who told them that had been going on and nothing happened like because he was a family friend and so all of us were harassed and molested while we were there with him and so you just would try to avoid him so that was going on mm. at the same time. Uh, we worked like eight to 10 days and then get like one day off. That was kind of like the shift, is you get one day off every yeah. like week and a half. And sometimes, if you got off early enough, we would drive down into Utah, the border right there, because we didn't have Wi Fi, but the McDonald's did. And okay. so we would drive down into town to get Wi Fi so we can, you know, be on Facebook, be on our phones, like mess around, do whatever. And the group of us that were together which he was actually one of the people in that car were like let's go off-roading like let's go stargazing let's go like we'll go mess around we'd have plenty of time before we have to get back because there was a curfew and so we decided to go stargazing and off-roading and on the way back it was a super long long gravel road and he was speeding fishtailing like trying to get himself to fishtail on the road on the gra- this gravel road and one of the girls that was in the back was it was freaking her out, and she told him to stop. And I'm the dummy up front who's like, "This is the like." This is the best night ever. I'm actually feeling something. Let's what? do it again. <laughs> and,
1: and the criminal is the one driving?
2: Oh, he was in the backseat. Um, there was oh. another guy who was a minor. Actually, all the time, all of us were 20, 19, 20. Most of us in that car were 19 and 20, except for the, the bad <laughs> coworker. He was And how did he 22. get in the car with you
1: guys if he's the one that was like sexually abusing he you guys? Because and- he would just
2: come. He was good friends with the guy that was driving. And like it didn't happen constantly. And it was kind of almost subtle enough that a lot of us that were there at first didn't recognize that that's what he was doing because you got, you just a, knew you
1: made you uncomfortable. It was also, uncomfortable. Yeah. And
2: like, there was some stuff that was obviously like, Hey, well, no crossed a line. But like a lot of it, you didn't know it was a bunch of really innocent young girls. Cause a lot of them were very like, were Christian and religious and they were just there to save money for school or for a mission. And so they had, they had no idea. Yeah. A lot of them didn't know. Like, I didn't know. I didn't really like some of the stuff I knew he made me uncomfortable, but like, I didn't Realize until later I didn't realize how bad it was until yeah. looking back I was like oh that was oh, terrible that was bad and so he would still like he was in the car they had been drinking too like he and his buddy had been he bought beer for him the night before and so there's beer in the car too so we're fishtailing on this road and this idiot is going He is going over 60 on this gravel road and he tried to fishtail it and he lost control and he overcorrected it and he did what you're not supposed to do and he turned into it. Oh, and so no. it just launched us. And so we rolled like over three and a half times that I can count like of what I kept track of. And you're in the um, front seat. I was in the front seat and the two in the back weren't wearing seat well he wasn't wearing a seatbelt and neither was we'll call him Brett, the other guy. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt either. But he'd have been in off car accidents. He's like, Yeah, I knew we were gonna roll and so he was able to brace himself but guy in the front next to me, driver, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And the only reason that he didn't get ejected from the car is his leg got wrapped around the steering wheel. And so it kept him from flying out of the car. I just remember my head broke the windshield, the mm. passenger windshield going through that. And I just, just held on. And then after what seemed like forever, we stopped and we, st- we were upside down. And the other two in the back got out somehow um, we're out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. So there's also like pitch black. And so you can't see anything. I'm stuck in my seatbelt hanging upside down. Um, didn't know how to get myself out of it. He's crumpled up. I had enough of like the dashboard lights, like, and some like the interior lights were on low enough. I could see him part of him and he was just crumpled up on the ground next to me. So I thought he was dead. Cause like I was saying his name trying to get his attention and he wasn't even moving. I couldn't even tell if he was breathing or not. And so I don't know how I did it, but I got my seatbelt undone and I was trying to brace myself up on the floor. So I didn't totally like slam face first into the windshield, but underneath me and my, I kind of was able to cushion the blow a little bit, but I still like hit Hit pretty hard and I broke through more like the windshield that was already like shattered at that point but you know I kind of like I hit broke more glass when I landed and that's what woke him up and he had just like been knocked out and so then he started like screaming and freaking out he's like oh my gosh you have to check my back you have to you I'm bleeding like Like, you you need to look at my back well and he'd been passed out he was unconscious so he just was like coming to and he's in extreme pain and so then I'm claustrophobic so I'm in this freaking tiny little subaru forester like trying to don't even know how we're gonna get out of the car because i can't freaking see anything and so i would just my house panicking i'm like get out of the car get out of the car get out of the car because then i'm also paranoid because i've seen a lot of movies i'm like the car could blow up <laughs> i yeah, was of like course. so paranoid about no, there being a fire that's definitely something that could happen yeah sure. I, i've watched a lot of movies so i'm like i don't want the car to blow up i don't I need think to be that in happens fire. in real life though no so i was so focused on getting out of this car And he is begging me to, like, look at my back, look at my back. And I had done CNA, like, some caregiving. Like, I was a CNA. I had worked a little bit with, like, hospice before. And so, I'm like, you actually have some medical, like, background a little bit. So, I'm like, you need to look at his back. And so, I miraculously, my phone didn't dislodge from my pocket. I still had my purse with everything in it because I had it around – like, sideways, the strap on me. So, like, I actually had my purse on me. Didn't lose anything that I'm aware of. Had my phone. So I was able to turn the flashlight on, on my smartphone. Like, thank God for smartphones. And I looked at his back, and I was like, hey, nothing's protruding. Like, you definitely have not great colors going on right now on your ribs. You probably broke a rib. Like, it's, we'll just get out of the car. So we get out of the car, and we joined the other. And the one the – Brett had come back to help us get out of the car once he got the other girl out, and she was – full on panicking like yeah full panic mode on the side of the road i can hear her just crying and worried the car is gonna explode so she had the same rational fear i did yeah and just like freaking out and so we got the car and brett wasn't saying a word i've got one girl over here freaking out he's not saying a word he just goes and sits down the gravel road by the car and just sits there and then i've got this other dude we'll call him i don't know what to call just call him the other dude other dude we'll call him other dude (laughs) i've got other dude i was gonna tell yeah the name i was gonna pick for him is actually the name of (laughs) brit
1: all my (laughs) generic white boy names
2: are the names of these guys (laughs) we'll stay away from names when we're talking about the real names they just all have generic white boy names (laughs) and so i can't pick one so other boy is like pacing (laughs) back and forth and so i'm trying him to sit down because i'm like dude you got something going on with like your ribs like if it's a bad enough break i don't want you to like puncture lung make it worse like you don't know how badly you're hurt because your adrenaline is going so much so I'm trying to get him to just sit down and calm down well then coyotes start howling near us I'm like we're dead (laughs) we're all gonna die (laughs) first first the non-explosion and now the the coyotes coyotes, and you can't see anything and like this was so crazy to me like looking back to like such a god thing for sure is I there was actually a random super random street sign in the middle of one of the crossroads that we took, on the gravel road. In the middle of nowhere, there was a street sign that was right next to the road that we took. And it, I remember it had a really funny name and it stood out to me. And I even had pointed it out to everybody in the car and I laughed at it. I'm like, that's really funny for one, that there's even a sign out here and they called it this. Yeah. and. The day before, the guy that had taken us like rabbit hunting that we were with actually was somebody that had served his mission in Boise. And he knew people I knew. He actually lived with people I went to church with. And so we had made this connection like literally 24 hours before. And I had his number and we didn't know where we were at. And so I was able to call him and be like, oh, hey. Yeah. And he lived there. So I'm like, hey, we just got in this really nasty wreck. Um, this is the crossroads. Like there's a, here's a street we're at. Yeah. And he was good friends with a cop who was, and then, so I called 911, was able to direct the ambulance out here. He was able to get in contact with his, his buddy that was a, um, a cop to meet us out there to help us even be able because it was an hour drive back to where we were living. And so they were able to meet us out there, get us to the hospital. Like, I was the one directing all the MTS. like, these are all the acts, like, this is what symptoms that this person's showing, like, like full thing like giving them the whole rundown um got to the hospital and they sent us home like miracle like none of us like they they told us and we had well, we took pictures of the accident and we had other pictures as well that they gave us and they said that none of us should have gotten out of that car and you can like, when you look at it when you look right we're like where i was at in the car too it's completely flat like com- the front is like not even existent anymore so the fact that any of us even survived that car crash especially with people not wearing seat belts the officer looked at me he's like you guys should be dead right now or very miss like we should have had to use like jaws of life to get you out of that car he's like i don't know how you got out of the car i don't know how you guys are okay i had no cuts on me crazy curly hair so i had glass all in my hair and in my eyebrows i wiped off glass off my eyebrows and tried to shake it out of my curls that was it like nothing like but
1: but just going through that experience though and seeing what you saw and then like just the the what ifs that could have happened and then you having to kind of bury how you were feeling to process it to help others I mean you like you said you gave everybody the rundown you're the one that oh had I didn't get processed it
2: at all because I
1: that's was the only one
2: having to keep it together that's what I mean
1: yeah you didn't get that chance so you're now adding that to your backpack mm-hmm. of, of, just of things to shut it down to shut so, it down don't
2: pay attention like to a it.
1: recap 2013 abusive relationship or emotionally abusive relationship with an eating disorder, all kind of, Oh yeah. And that's still going on. <laughs> but then like 2014, the like, right after that, you get into the relationship with the older gentleman and you have the kind of sort of engagement po- almost, almost restraining ha- order. Yep. So you have back to back abusive relationships. Then you finally remove yourself um, oh, from, you know, the 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 two guys. Yeah, which I in. didn't think
2: they were abusive either at that time. At that time, you didn't no, know. I was like, oh, they're just creepy.
1: Again, put, <laughs> put it in your backpack. Yeah, but <laughs> acknowledge in, it. Putting it into your PTSD backpack, and then you have this horrible accident. I mean, that's, I mean, all within two and a half years.
2: Oh, under two. Yeah, it was like two years. Within two years, that was all like... Right there.
1: Oh, my gosh. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Rachel will share the tipping point before her PTSD diagnosis and what she's doing to manage it today. Here's Microformulas Life Coach Sarah Fisk
0: with the one thing you need to know.
1: Hold up. Here's one thing you need to know.
0: Hi, this is Sarah Bybee Fisk, Life Coach with Microformulas, with one thing you need to know about PTSD. PTSD is the body's traumatic response to having been involved in something like a natural disaster or some kind of event that was highly traumatic and where the body cannot let go of the memory. And so every time something triggers the memory of that event, the body has a physical reaction to it. Sometimes these symptoms are so severe that they require the intervention of a therapist or psychologist who can really help the person address that issue. This is often true in cases where someone in the military is suffering from PTSD. But trauma is widespread and it doesn't have to be a serious huge event like a natural disaster or some kind of war-related event to where the body has a memory of being scared, anxious, fearful, threatened. So the first thing to remember when you are feeling fear, anxiousness, worry in relation to an event that happened is that that's totally normal. When you are in an episode where your body is remembering past trauma, The first thing to do is to be with yourself in compassion. And it sounds like this. Talking to yourself. I know you're feeling fearful. I know you're anxious. You're anxious because you're remembering that this happened. It's okay. I'm here for you. Oftentimes we go straight to judgment. Why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. Why is why am I doing this again? This is so stupid. I know better. But that actually shuts down the body's ability to process the trauma and going to yourself in compassion. I know you're afraid. It's okay. We're gonna be able to get through this. It's a feeling that's in your body, it's really strong compassionate response will actually allow your body to process the event and not just shut it off because when you just shut it off by judgment or some other way it just comes back later it's got you thinking doesn't it you're like give me more
2: this is intentionally
0: disruptive
1: with Shauna McNeil all right so I think we're now what at 2016 with your story yeah, And this is kind of where things took an even more horrible turn, so to speak.
2: Like when you think it can't get worse and it does. <laughs> I
1: mean, because oh my gosh, how much you have went through at this point has been almost unimaginable. So let's start with 2016. What was the big thing that happened then? I think there was a couple of things, right?
2: Yeah. Um. So I moved back home from Arizona. The relationship I had to like the one normal healthy person I've dated, I just like dropped him. Because I just was not in the right mindset. And he was on his mission. I didn't tell him about, like, the sexual harassment and the stuff that had happened. Because I didn't want to stress him out. And I didn't know how to share about it with anybody. And so I just, like, that's when I first kind of started shoving things down and just bottling it up. And so I... Putting it in your emotional backpack. Yeah. yeah. So I, I cut off ties with him. Um, moved back home. Knew I had to get a job. And so... I knew I would eventually start job hunting, but I wasn't in like a massive rush. I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do with my life yet since everything I'd previously planned on doing didn't pan out. And so I was kind of just trying to like refigure out what my goals in life were. And I went and I visited an old friend of mine and she asked me, she said, are you still interested in doing like caregiving? Like, do you still do that kind of stuff? Cause I had in high school, um, I'd been a CNA and worked like with hospice and that kind of stuff. And I told her that I did, like I hadn't done it for a while. I just came, moved back from Arizona. It was definitely still something that I was interested in. The kind of the big thing that I'd been thinking about is going um, to nursing school to work specifically with hospice, actually, is kind of what I thought I'd want to do at the time. And so she said that she had a worker who had a friend of theirs that they were helping out who was just re-diagnosed with cancer. And she was a single mom. It was just her and her one daughter. And they were just looking for some help, like one or two nights a week, kind of being there in the evenings to just help out someone, just spend the night with her. I was like, oh, that's easy, yeah, I can do that. So we set up a meeting with her to meet the rest of the family, to meet her, see what they thought of me, if it was a good fit. And long story short, that I actually ended up my one to two nights a week ended up with me moving in. Within like the first month, they asked if I would just move in with her.
1: And how old were you at this point?
2: Twenty. At 20, okay. So, yeah, beginning of 2016, I moved in with her. She was in her early 50s and had just one daughter that was 12 at the time that I moved in. She'd been divorced for a few years, and she had just had a cane that she used. Um, This was her second time. She had breast cancer a few years previously, and it had gone to remission. And she's super active, super healthy, used to be in the Navy, was a professional dancer for years with ballet and so she's very very active and so she had thought she had hurt a muscle working out doing a dance class and after a week that didn't get better she went into the doctor and that's when they found out that hey you've got cancer and it's back and it's it started off like in her hips again so she actually like technically had broken her hip because of a tumor that was growing kind of like fractured her hip yeah and obviously with cancer it's not going to heal and so I was there within the first month that I moved in we knew that she was, I mean, she was terminal. We knew it was just kind of a, a matter of time. They just weren't sure how much time that she had. And so I went with her to take her to one of her doctor's appointments. Now she actually was also in a medical, like she was an anesthesiologist. Oh, okay. um, like kind of worked in that, like she was a nurse, but, and I can't remember the proper term, but like, that's the field that she was in. And she helped with that in the ER. And so she's obviously medically smart. Her husband was a doctor. Um, her ex-husband is a doctor and so owns his own practice. And so something wasn't right to her about her symptoms that she was experiencing but she had pretty severe anxiety Mm -hmm. and so she wasn't sure that it was like actually they were like founded on anything real um so she called her ex and they were talking about the symptoms and he's like i think that you you need to go to the er he's like because the symptoms that she's having they sound like she's having a stroke and very similar to it and so we even called her doctor back and we're like these are are you sure and she's like oh no we'll just get your mri scheduled it's gonna be fine You can come in tomorrow and take a look at it. And we ended up just taking her that night. And they found out that she had a slow brain bleed that was happening. And so if we had even waited another 24 hours to go in when her doctor told her to come back, like, she would have been dead. Like, she would have died in her sleep. And so because of the brain bleed and, like, she basically had a mini stroke, she like became paralyzed. And that's what kind of started some of it. She was losing a lot of sensation in her arms and legs and what they just assumed it was a tumor, like cutting off circulation. Right. But no, she was actually having a stroke. And so she came back, she's in the hospital for a few days. They had to do surgery on her. She was like, had hardly any function of the left side of her body. And so just like the first month that I moved in, month, month and a half, I went from having like she was, you know, could walk by herself with a little bit of assistance to now she's like fully dependent on me to move her for anything. So, and that was really hard. And being 20 years old. I mean, yeah, I was 20,
1: but 20 years old, not only the physical exhaustion, but also the mental exhaustion, which I'm sure you probably didn't realize it at the time, how much it was wearing on you. I mean, to see someone that you care about yeah, and having that full responsibility of being the caretaker, Holy cow. I mean, obviously she was going through so much and you empathize with that and things like that but still your own mental health is very important as well and just being that young after what had happened to you early on and then taking that on
2: but you put it in your backpack Shonda. You, you put it in the
1: backpack so
2: with her daughter and her daughter we became really close I used to always just refer to her as like my kid her mom would actually introduce me as her other mother a lot and so I turned 21 while I was living with them and I I I tr- I feel like I'm usually pretty much like an optimist, but I kind of wasn't starting to be an optimist for very long once she'd had her stroke and was paralyzed. And so I'm like, this is my little family. And you care for them. Oh, be- yeah. I mean, we start off as strangers and they became my, I mean, she was my person. Like if anyone's watched Grey's Anatomy yeah. and with Christina and... Meredith. Meredith, thank yeah. you. Uh-huh. Like that's their, like you're my person. And that's-, that's what she was. And we watched that show together all the time. And she'd always would just look at me. She's like, yeah, you're my person, Rachel. Mm -hmm. And so we were so close. And, like, we had our little family. Like, it was just us. Yeah. And they talked about bringing hospice in. But they made it sound like it was just really to help keep things more comfortable and just check in. They thought she probably had, like, another year. And it happened so fast that she went from having a year to probably just, like, a few months. And everybody else is still like no it's okay it's just an attitude thing she can beat it she can beat it and I was there like no this isn't gonna go where you guys think it's gonna go and at that same time you know that's when I, I first started drinking because they always had wine in the house and I never wanted to drink a lot at the house just because I I never wanted to put myself in a position where I wasn't able to help if there was an emergency but there was just like one night everybody went to bed really early and I remember she told me she's like you kind of have like a little night off here like everyone's going to bed Her daughter was at her dad's house take the night just like relax you know just go turn on some tv she's like i'm gonna just be in here i'm gonna go to bed like you just kind of take care of yourself tonight just relax have some downtime. so i was like well okay so i like poured myself i don't even know what like made me do it but i just poured myself a glass of wine i was like okay like i'll just that's what everybody does they have a glass of wine to relax in the evening so i put on a show and had a glass of wine i was like oh it works. Like you definitely get relaxed. Um, and on those weekends that I did have off, there were some girls from my church actually that we, they would go out drinking. They'd go have a drink or two, like go to a happy hour and have like sushi and a drink. And so I started going with them occasionally and I was like shocked. I was like, wow, I didn't realize how much pressure and stress I was under all the time until I felt that burden be lifted. And when I felt the difference- You are
1: numbing the backpack.
2: Yeah. Like when I felt it, when I thought the weight was lifted, it was, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so nice. And I've always been more quiet and shy. And so I was able to be like more of an extrovert and be funny and be more comfortable to be myself and people liked me and I was fun. Like, so like, this is, this is kind of nice. This is fine. I had some concerns because I've got like alcoholism and addiction runs in my family, but I was like, no, it's okay. It's just a little bit. So things progressed with her and it was hard because the last couple of months, um, her daughter still kind of didn't understand like that. It was a lot closer than I think she realized Mm -hmm. because she's been sick her, her whole life. So her mom's always been sick. So kind of like, when is this actually like for real? It's like a real serious thing. And, um, we kind of talked about goals all the time about how she wanted to make sure she was there for some big milestones for her daughter and so um we made a plan for her daughter's birthday for when she turned 13 kind and it's on Halloween so it made it like it we kind of did a fun really fun thing took her out trick-or-treating and then when we got back we came home early from trick-or-treating and she was talking to me. She's like, you know, I think I'm really doing a lot better. Like, I think I think I can make it for longer. Like, I think I can make it till Christmas. That, that will be my next goal. And I remember we had a whole conversation um, that first week of November about setting realistic goals. And like, hey, you know what? A lot of people set goals every year, like for New Year's, and they end up failing because they set like a goal that's not attainable. And so I'm like, let's do like small, incremental, yeah, like attainable goals. Like, let's just set the next little small and let's chip it away. It's like, yeah, Christmas is a great goal, but what do you think is realistic for you? Like, you know for sure you can make it to. She's like, oh, well, I can do Thanksgiving. I'm like, yeah, that's a great goal. Let's let's do Thanksgiving. And um, we had a great, great hospice nurse that came in. Like, hospice nurses are saints. They're absolute angels. Yeah. And she would come in every week and just do checkups. And she would talk to me. She would let me call her all the time because I would call her just sobbing because I would be so emotionally spent and just done because I had to always have a smile on my face like I had to I had to shove everything in, like in the backpack and put a smile on because like I was what was holding this family together and even with her mom and extended family nobody had a lot of experience with this before and they emotionally they're such sweet people I love her family they're just all very sensitive soft hearted people and it's also their family member that they're watching go through this Mm -hmm. and so they were just emotionally having a harder time with it and so I needed to be the strong person for them I need to be the strong person for my little family and there were just days that I would just absolutely like like I was going like gonna have a breakdown um, because of the pressure to just keep it all together and so those sweeteners would just let me call her all the time and I would just bawl and she'd kind of just correct me and like encourage me and tell me it's gonna be okay Um, because I also was freaking out because of how much that the mom was taking pain medication wise and anxiety medication wise like I was the one who did all of her meds for every single week and she was taking a lot more of a lot of stuff and in my mind I'm like oh my gosh this is bad and there was that that month her nurse just told me she's like Rachel she's dying. She's not going to get better. This isn't ever going to get better. So what if it's self-medicating? She's like, it might be, it might not be. Does it matter? Like, and that's when she told me, she's like, you're going to maybe get two more months. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Like, just let her, let her be comfortable. And so there was one night, um, cost of coming in a little bit more frequently because her mom's health was starting to decline. And that's when they told us like, hey, you probably have like a month left. So we like, she needs to take a break. And so, I took her out for the night. We went and saw Elf, and her aunt was there watching her mom with another relative. And I was really stressed about leaving, but I'm like, it's only for like an hour and a half. We're going to be good. What can happen in two hours? And by the end of that show, they were finishing, like they were just starting the credits, and I immediately pulled out my phone just to check to see if I had any messages. And I had had a text from her aunt that said, as soon as you're done, you need to call me. And she's like, it's not good. So the guy I was seeing at the time, he was with me for that movie. And so I told him, I was like, hey, can you take her, like, take her farther off? I need to call her aunt and check in. And I was trying to put a smile on my face, but I could tell she picked up on my difference. And she's like, Rachel, what's wrong? And I was like, no, I'm just going to check in with your aunt. It's fine. And um, I kind of went down one of, like, little alleys downtown. And I called her and I said, hey, what's wrong? And she said, well... She's like, it's a good thing you are gone because while you were gone, we were helping move her to her commode that was by the couch. And she said she stopped breathing and she was fully conscious. And so she realized that she stopped breathing. And so she started like trying to scream and like had a massive panic attack, very mm-hmm. understandably. So she said it was very, she was really shaken up telling me about it. She's like, it was super traumatic. I'm so grateful that, you know, her daughter wasn't there to be because it was super scary. Mm-hmm the hospice nurse came out and she took her vitals and she said that she's going to pass away tonight. Mm. And so you guys, she's like, I need you to talk to um, her daughter yeah. and tell her, I, she's like, I've already talked to her dad. I like, you need to ask her. Um, obviously he wants her to call him. And so you need to ask her what she wants to do. She's welcome to come home tonight and be with her mom for a little bit. Um, Or if she'd rather go to her dad's for a few hours and then come when it's closer, she can do that. Like, let's give her some options. And we took her to a store because we had to go to the bathroom, I think. And so she ran into like a gas station or store to go to the bathroom. And while she's out, I turned to um, my friend and I told him, I said, hey, her mom is dying tonight. I've got to tell her what's going on. So I'm like, can you please just give us a minute in your truck? to, like, for me to talk to her so I can just kind of have that private moment because it's freezing outside, you know, so I'm like, I'm sorry, can you just stand outside for a little bit so I can talk to her? And so she got back in the car and I said, hey, I need to talk to you. And she's like, something's wrong. What's wrong? What what aren't you telling me? And so I had to sit down this 13-year-old girl and tell her, like, hey, your mom is going to die tonight. Hmm. I said, so you can, like, I'm sorry. Like, she has a few hours. You can either go your dad's house you i'm going to go home with her right now i'm going to go home you're welcome to come home your dad wants to talk to you so i have here's my cell phone like i have his number go talk to your dad and then let me know what you want to do okay and that that's the one thing that i'll never forget is telling her that her mom was gonna die that night mm. like yeah being sorry tissues. That was the one thing I just never, I didn't think it would be me. Like, I'm a 21-year-old telling this 13-year-old daughter, like, she has no siblings. Her parents are divorced. She really doesn't have that much family in the area. I'm like, hey, like, I had to tell her that she's losing her mom. Like, how do you do that, you know? Um, so she, she talked to her dad, decided that she wanted to come home. So I'm like, okay. That's fine. Like, well, let's go home. So my uh, my boyfriend dropped us off home. He kind of came in. Um, everybody loved him, so he came in, just gave everybody hugs and left. And so they kind of had some other of their family that came and kind of said their goodbyes. And she was not coherent. She, she was not coherent mm-hmm. at all. Um, so we kind of had it set up so everybody was sitting around her, her hospital bed in the middle of their living room. And it was, like, they had some music playing. There was a gal, a family friend that was there, and she had put on some music. And um, her daughter was, like, curled up on the bed next to her with their little... Like, their Uh. little dog was curled up on her chest, like, on her shoulder. Oh, my gosh. So I was giving her liquid morphine because that's what what they get. Um, And they were all, you know, talking, and her daughter was singing along to the music. They were singing songs to her and... She started suffocating because and that's how she died oh is because God. she had tumors in her lungs. Um, and so she they started pressing enough that where she couldn't breathe anymore. And so she started having this awful like, it's called like the death rattle, <laughs> this awful rattling, wheezing sound. And I remember her daughter just like looked up at me like, panic, and she's like, Rachel, she's like, is she okay? What's that sound? Is she okay?" And I just looked at her dad and he knew what was happening, and he just nodded his head at me and so I gave her a double dose of her morphine and I mean it's basically OD'd her that's that's what it is like I OD'd her basically so she wouldn't realize you were doing this yeah
1: (laughs) you were doing this not the nurse
2: no the nurse was gone because the nurse had left to give everybody Uh. their space and give them their privacy and she told me you know give her like and I I didn't do the wrong thing I did exactly what I was told to do but I was still the one doing I was still the one who was administering the final dose on her And i I remember that the dance she loved abba like they loved abba and so her the the dancing queen dancing queen oh really because she was a dancer her entire life so her entire family always used to call her dancing queen when she grew up like when she was growing up and so that song just happened to come on shuffle on the ipod and so her sister and her daughter were holding her hand singing that song to her and I kid you not the very last note of that song she took her last breath oh, and Rachel. so it was like it actually was like a really it was a very special moment with everybody um and how it timed out I mean it, it really was very very her very special very like yeah so yes and she passed away and um Called her, called her hospice nurse and let them know because that's what they told me to do is, you know, when she's when she's finally gone, just call us. We'll get the coroner to come out, get her. You guys can have her, like, spend some time with her for, like, an hour or two. They'll have her, like, come get her body and transport it. Um, so I coordinated all of that, got her to have the coroners come and pick her up, and, like, they... Carried her off and we spent the night there at the house um her sister daughter and I just all spent the night together and that was kind of it like and then I packed up my stuff and I moved back to my house (laughs) my parents house um oh my gosh yeah (laughs) so I wow
1: it was 21 years old yeah that was a huge, that's, yeah. that's and a that lot was, of responsibility for such a was, young she person. She was my best friend. Like yeah, the few friends that.
2: that I had to, like I lost all my friends during that time because they were my world. Like It consumed I was a, you. Yeah, it did. Like they were my world. It was my job. Like their lives depended on me. And then even when I did have time like to go to church on a weekend or time off, like what do you say to people who are people who are my age and older who like are Maybe going to college they're going out to movies with friends and they ask what I'm up to or like what am I doing like how do I tell them like oh I watch someone you know I'm watching someone slowly die in front of their daughter right. like that's what I'm doing with my life right now like how do you talk about that and when so I, I just I just kind of faded off from friends because I couldn't relate to anybody.
1: Well it sounded like you were setting it's not like you were completely and consumed and intertwined with their lives to where like you're setting goals for them but not yourself and you well, were because no, the yeah. whole
2: point of me being alive at that time was to take care of them like my right. purpose and everything was I them. did was them yeah so when she when she died I had a moment of like oh what do I do now like what am I supposed to do and it as I hated how cliche it sounded but it's like I've, like, had to find myself again because for almost an entire year, my sole source of being alive was them. And so when you take that away, like, I don't know.
1: You have a lot of stuff you have to deal with at this Yeah, point. I'm like, what
2: What a am I supposed to, to do? So I, and then for the first time, like, I I've had to put a smile on, you know, through all of that. It was a smile. It was being the strong person putting the face on and so like i just kind of started crumbling and so then i started drinking more and i started drinking more because that kind of was my tipping point of just i was so overwhelmed with feelings that i just i couldn't handle it it. anymore like there was just so much loss and on top of like everything that was happening and at that same time like i (laughs) ended another relationship like we were gonna get engaged she had a ring for me that relationship ended horribly on top of it so I've lost my little family I've lost the one person who was there through all of it who saw everything it's so like what else was there to do and so I just I drank a lot <laughs> so
1: so when did you realize that the that the drinking was a problem like when did it Like, I mean, again, you've had so much happen in such a short period of time. I mean, think about, think about it when you see it on paper. I mean, I see how you have all your notes and your, um, your, I mean, (laughs) like, think about that. Look at that. I'm looking at it going and just remembering and reflecting on our conversation here. You have put, oh my gosh, you went through so much in such a short period of time that now it's like, like you said you're trying to find your purpose again trying to find yourself again and then you go into emotional numbing and that mm-hmm. is where the alcohol comes in and then that also falls into a little bit of shame and what's going on because yeah. now i'm doing something that normally would be out of character for you well, and you hiding know? it from my family and hiding it from because your family not only right
2: obviously because they've got we've got a family history of it but also because they're very religious people right you have your and faith so- too trying to hide it from them I at that point was kind of just done with faith and religion in general like I just I couldn't I couldn't juggle feelings <laughs> in yeah. general feelings um, are
1: sometimes just super sucky they're the worst they're super sucky <laughs> they're I know worst. I get it yeah
2: and um I was starting to I wasn't experimenting with drugs yet at that point but I remember I, I kind of thought maybe I had a problem, maybe. So I remember I went to, I looked up an AA meeting, went to an AA meeting, and I remember sitting there the first time I was there and listening to people talk. And the first one I went to is kind of like a, a Christian-sponsored AA. It wasn't like a full-on regular one. It was more like really Christian-focused. So I thought I'd go there. And I remember listening to people, and I'm like, oh, I don't have a problem, but you guys do. <laughs> right, like, you this, guys are I, I don't crazy. fall into this category. Oh, no, yeah. No, and then I, I tried a regular AA. And I listened to some of their stories. I'm like, well, I don't have a felony. I don't have I like the only person I read who didn't have. Yeah. Right. I, but I wasn't thinking that. I don't have a felony. I don't have a DUI. I've never been arrested. Obviously, like, I don't have a problem. And it took a while before it hit, like, yet. I don't have a problem yet. So I try to kind of, I kept making myself go to AA. And I would really just try to go on, like, a Friday night. And I will remember... um what kept me going is there are so many that sh- a couple people that shared their story because I would sit for like two or three meetings back to back on Friday night just because it kept it keeps you sober like in one place and I remember that someone was sharing a story and I just started crying so I'm like oh my gosh she understands how I feel because I was try- I had tried to explain it to people before um, and I had moved out at that point I had roommates I had a roommate that I was getting closer with and she knew I was drinking and I tried to explain it to her and no one Nobody got it. Like nobody understood that I was drinking because I didn't want to feel any things. And everyone's like, well, you just got to deal with it. Like kind of like you just buckle up buttercup. Like you just got to deal with it. Like you have a problem. You just admit you have a problem and you just like white knuckle it. That's what you do. Like just deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's not that hard. And no one understood that I don't want to feel things like that's because everyone always said, well, you got to find an outlet, find an outlet. I'm like, but nothing will take away pain that you're feeling or stress. Like drinking or drugs does like that's that's the point i'm like i'm not yeah. drinking as an outlet i'm drinking because i don't want to feel anything and i could go pick up music as a hobby or try to get back into art or do whatever i'm like but i still am feeling and that's the part i didn't want and so i heard someone in this aa meeting describing such a similar feeling and i just cried so i'm like oh my gosh they get it like i this is what i've been trying to do but i i ended up drinking like four or five years straight i was never sober for 30 days from anything drugs or drinking for about five years i was always on something if i wasn't drinking i was using and i wasn't using anything super hard Um, i won't you know talk about what i was experimenting with but um, i realized that maybe i had a problem because there was one night at somebody's house and i about did a line of coke and before i did i didn't do it but i realized they were going to get ready to do it and i wanted to and that's when I had this thought I'm like hmm maybe yeah. you have a problem <laughs> yeah. maybe you have a problem if you're like look at what you're doing and is like, after
1: five years This is after
2: five years it's like yeah. I think you might actually have a problem and it's not just a matter of not having enough self-control or self-will and at that that same time um I had a stalker during that kind of that whole thing too I had a stalker another one yeah and this he actually was um a first responder and He was a source for some of my stuff. Like he, I could tell you to save your complex. So he liked when I was using and he liked when I was drunk and um, I was struggling a lot with like my depression and being suicidal and he liked it because he could come in and save me. And I didn't want to see him, but he was, I I can't remember how we, like he really kind of got into my life, honestly, Um, because at that whole year. I was drinking so much. I don't remember. And that's like, I think it's like 2018 is kind of when it all came to a head and got the worst. And I don't remember the majority of that year. Like, I really don't. And part of it was emotionally, like my brain was blocking a lot of stuff anyway. And just from disassociation, I was blocking a lot. But then also because I was drinking, I was drinking so much and obviously not being sober for even a few weeks at a time from anything. I don't remember i just remember he would provide me with things um i remember that he so he ended up raping me twice back to back within a month apart i didn't realize that it was even considered rape what he did the first time was Um, he
1: unconscious i mean i was i was still
2: conscious and for that first time it was very heavily like pressured and i didn't really want to um but he was pretty aggressive about it and because i said no but in my head, I'm like, well, I didn't say no enough, and I didn't oh, push Rachel. back enough, and so then I just yeah. went into, like, my, your brain just switches off. I'm like, right. we'll just get it over with. Uh, we'll detach,
1: just, detach, yeah. We'll just
2: do it, get it over with. It's going to be fine. I didn't realize that that was rape until I was, um, I had been kind of forced into therapy because my depression was reaching ahead, and um, I cops called on me for things, and I was pretty suicidal. Like, I was just done. I was so done with everything, and was seeing my therapist and I've been seeing it's the same one I've been seeing for over two years now. And I love love her her. to death. She is my grandma to me. She's wonderful. And I remember when I first was telling her about that and she didn't put the words in my mouth, but she kind of was trying to help lead me to the conclusion that that actually was considered rape.
1: Yeah.
2: And then the second time that it happened was October of 2018, like September, October, it was end of September because i was in utah for a friend's wedding and he took me out for lunch and um i had a few drinks which i wasn't going to but he was totally fine with me having drinks because he liked to save you Uh uh-huh yeah and so he was i had a few drinks i had time between my friend's wedding reception and that morning and so we went back to his apartment just to watch movies and i want to take a nap and i just remember that like the stuff that he did I had told him no so many times and then afterward I felt really sick and I remember he gave me like he had a safe that he gave me some pills he's like this will make you feel better yeah and I just wasn't even like super coherent I wasn't super I wasn't super drunk and I wasn't asleep but I just was not in like a good headspace and he gave me some pills and I started throwing up like almost instantly after I had them I was, like, in the bathroom, I'm puking, and he's in, like, rubbing my back, saying, like, see, don't you see that I take care of you? And I, like, I am not there at all. <laughs> and I went back to his room, so, I'm, like, I got to change. I got to get in this dress for this wedding. I got to go to my friend's reception. Like, it's starting soon. He had to drive me. Um. So then he's, like, here, here's more of, here, you can have more pills that'll make you feel better. And I was kind of crying. He's like, well, why are you upset? And I said, I told you no. And he's like, okay. And I was like, I told you no. And he's like, why are you mad? And I'm like, I said no. He's like, oh, well, I, I didn't think that you meant it. I didn't believe that you meant this it. This is after
1: he raped you a second time. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And he's like,
2: I didn't think you meant it. So he gave me the pills. And he's like, here, these will make you feel better. And here's some water. And then he drove me to my friend's reception. And he dropped me off. And told me that he was going to go get some help and get some therapy and like I have pictures. I avoid my Facebook around that year because I get pictures and memories that will pop up of photos from my friend's wedding and I'm standing there next to her smiling with our other friends and nobody has any idea that yeah, I had just gotten happened? raped and I'm just there smiling. Oh god, Rachel. And so <laughs> that time I went back and I told my therapist and I never pressed charges, I mean he was law enforcement, he had been in law enforcement, and I thought, well, what's who's gonna believe me right It's me against this cop, like who's gonna believe me and so that was kind of the
1: that was your that was kind of the last thing, point.
2: and so I'm like, you know what like i I really need to I need to get clean and get my life together because i can't I can't live like this anymore, and my therapist is great she she's the first one who told me like hey, I think you have PTSD. And I was like, oh. At that point, even up to then, like, I had no idea yeah. that I had had trauma. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just a bad hand. It was just bad luck. It was just a lot in a very short amount of time. Like, it in my mind, it was me not being strong enough to handle what was happening. Yeah. Like, or not having enough faith to, like, get through. Or, like, it was... I, it was my fault, like, I put myself in this position. I knew that he had abused me before. It's your fault that it happened the second time because you, you met him for lunch. It's your fault that you agreed to have lunch with him again. Like, I went, everything that had happened, I really just thought, like, it, it, it's all me. It's my fault. I made choices that put myself in situations to let A, B, and C happen. Um, I just, yeah, I thought it really just boiled down to me not being strong enough. And if I was just a little bit better than I could have handled I could handle things better I wouldn't have a problem like
1: Rachel you are so (laughs) strong like you are so strong I I mean like I I don't know anyone I, I cannot imagine going through what you went through in that in just a few years and I like listening to you I was looking at this um before we started recording today and you legit follow every single Category of somebody going through PTSD, what they experience, yeah. <laughs> like behavioral agitation, irritability, hostility, uh, self destructive behavior, um, social isolation, uh, psychological flashbacks, fear, severe anxiety, mistrust, uh, mood swings, loss of interest or pleasure in activities, guilt, loneliness. I mean, you're putting all this pressure, you're putting all this guilt.
2: I checked off every box. Every single box, <laughs> yep.
1: sleep, insomnia, and nightmares. Also, other common things for PTSD: uh, emotional detachment,
2: financial suicide is a really one I didn't realize either. Oh, really? Is um, it's kind of like suicidal tendencies, but they'll break that down to including like financial suicides, like when things start going well or you're successful that you go out and you basically self sabotage yourself. So you go out and you like recklessly spend a lot of money on something. Um, it's like self sabotage. It's That's a also form connected of with
1: like, bipolar disorder, I think. It is, and yeah.
2: bipolar is one of the biggest most common like diagnosis yeah. that people get is they'll be diagnosed with bipolar and uh, very often they actually have ptsd but because the symptoms can be so similar a lot of people who don't have enough experience with trauma will misdiagnose and so financial suicide is one so i was doing that like up the wazoo like i was reckless with spending um I spent, and I also had spent, like, my entire savings on alcohol. Like, I was so broke. I was so broke I, because I drained my savings. I would had a few, like, financial emergencies come up on top of it, but everything else when I got a paycheck, it was alcohol and food for my dog. Like, because yeah. my dog was, like, that was the reason I, I was your still here. had dog at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I had, I had rescued him. I had moved out in, like, 2017. I had moved out, gotten a place, and I had my dog, and he – He's so in tune with me. He's like my little therapy dog. He's your person. He is my person. He's your He's so so aware. Like, even now when I'm anxious or I have bad dreams at night, he'll wake me up or he'll come lay on top of me when I'm crying and, like, to calm me down. And he knows when I'm triggered and I'm, like, going to have, like, a flashback or I'm in a trigger, like and I start to disassociate, he'll come and bump my hand and make me pet him to help bring me back in the present. Like this little dog's an angel. So it was either feed myself or feed my dog sometimes. And so of course I, I fed him and I was buying alcohol. Um, so financial suicide. And then the other one that surprised me, and I don't, hope it's not too graphic to talk about on here, is like hypersexuality. Yeah. Um, because I always thought like if you're a victim of sexual assault and abuse that you're going to... Do the opposite. Opposite. Don't yeah. touch it. No yeah. physical affection. No right. touch whatsoever. And I kept putting myself in positions where that wasn't a thing. Um, and I realized it's because any guy that I went on a date with or talked to me, it like instantly flipped into survival mode or it gave me control of the situation. If Accounting I was overt, overtly sexual, that gave me control. And yeah. then it went... like I mean, it was a whole thing. I had no idea. So between... <laughs> And my with my therapist going through like those symptoms, talking about the financial suicide, talking about like hypersexuality being a thing, I was very called out <laughs> in the yeah. entire thing.
1: So therapy has helped helped you obviously tremendously. You've been seeing her for forever now, yeah. and then um, I know you mentioned um, a TED talk about PTSD that you wanted to talk about yeah. and let everyone know like going through this. And again, we said at the beginning of this, PTSD is usually connected with combat and. This is one of those things. You are clinically diagnosed PTSD. I'm clinically diagnosed PTSD. I think it was 2018. So I so believe. We, oh no, yeah, we're trauma I'm, buddies. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was twenty. It was 2015. I got diagnosed with PTSD, and mine was actually triggered into. It kind of broke my ego. Was my husband's um, emotional affair. Um, but that, that wasn't what created it. It was Mm -hmm. what brought it back to life. It was just
2: the final little straw that made everything else snap.
1: Right. And mine, because I, I, again, like, I think one of the things that says mistrust Mm -hmm. and I did not trust anyone. And I found this person who I'd been with since high school and, um, you know, we built this bond and I, I opened up to him out of everybody. I mean, like even my own family, he was the, he was my person. And for me to have, have that happen to me. And where my PTSD came from was my childhood, my childhood abuse. And I mean, it was just this childhood trauma that then just came to fruition as an adult um, in a big way to the point where I'm still recovering from the aftermath of it. I mean, like body image issues, I kind of, I stopped loving myself, you know, and just all these things. And when she, my therapist, my psychiatrist told me it was PTSD, I looked at her like, what, well, are you kidding me? Like, no way because you can't think
2: try again <laughs> yeah i'm like i'm like
1: keep i keep it coming like, you know but then when she puts it into perspective like your mm-hmm. therapist did you're like what and you see the breakdown so she gave me a ptsd workbook and boy, i tell you four pages in i'm like nope this is trigger
2: city you well, know what's so hard hence hard about this episode that, name triggered is everybody a lot of people are like oh they buy these workbooks and at least you have like you have a professional that you're going through with it but those books, like no, they I, can I be went through so it by great. myself. Oh, okay, maybe not that. And I, I
1: shouldn't have done that. No, I shouldn't have done a it. A lot of
2: people will do that. They buy these self-help workbooks that are for like PTSD and for trauma. And what they do is they trigger themselves even yep. worse because they're not being You're exactly right supervised or working through it in a healthy way with a, like a trauma informed therapist. And that's the biggest difference is there's therapists, but you have to find somebody that's trauma informed. And my addiction, like when I first started seeing my counselor. She didn't even really touch on my alcohol or drug use. She kind of told me to try to start cutting back slowly. But she didn't even touched on it because she said that most of the time, like, she gave me some percentage. I don't even know now. But the most of the time, people who are addicts and who abuse alcohol and drugs are people with untreated trauma yeah. because oh, all of them were just trying to numb things and not feel things. And there's, so.
1: There's nothing that makes me more angry. When someone just calls somebody a druggie or a drug addict or whatever, or or says get your get your get your your part of my language together and and get your life together, you have no clue, man. You have no clue what that person's been through. How dare you judge anyone? We are people, all connected in our way. How dare you judge them? We need to help them. We need to make them feel better about themselves. We need to love them through it. You're an asshole.
2: I am so lucky that I never. I am so lucky that I never got, because I had known if I had taken that line of Coke, if I had tried some of the other stuff that I could have, I know I would not be the person I meant to. I know it would have gotten me hook, line, and sinker. And so I'm so lucky to have that. But I see that with people. I'm like, it's not a choice. People yeah. think it's a choice. Like, well, just don't drink. We'll just don't use. And they're like, well, you're choosing that over your family. Does your family well, not just mean <laughs> right, you know? i like, there. It's not just as simple as just stopping, or yeah. it's because you value a drug more than you value a family member. I'm like, you have no choice. Once you cross that line of addiction, you don't have a choice anymore. Like, and there's a line. Once there's like a pendulum swinging, that a lot of people can party hard, drink hard, experiment with drugs, do whatever, mm. and they don't cross that line. Doesn't swing into the addiction line, but the second it does, you never get to go back. And you're always, you're and not from there on, it's either you're addicted but you can kind of control it and get some help or it progresses to where you do see people homeless on the street because their addiction has cost them everything like do you think that people choose that life for themselves they can't help it and so
1: and it also triggers when they get into the drugs it also triggers psychological disorders schizophrenia i mean there's so there's a list of things that 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 can can transpire after that ptsd
2: is not just like you can't Get your shit together. It's not just like your brain, like just kind of doing like A, B, and C, and you'll feel better. You're hurt. No, and my therapist yeah. will talk about too some people. It's not a matter of just get over it, buckle up, buttercup, that whole thing. Her comparison is that, well, when you're in a situation that triggers a fight or flight response and your adrenaline's up, she's like, especially like as a child, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. So, like when you've yep. had trauma, and you're, it's just like, it's like a car engine that's being revved. Yep. She's like, you can have that being revved and you can do it for a long time. But all it takes is like, maybe find out that your husband had an emotional yep. affair. Or for yep. me, like, I mean, what kind of set off too is like somebody leaving, kind of the same, the last person in the world that ever thought would leave me, left, left me. Yeah. And like, that was kind of my big thing where I spiraled the farther, like all it takes is one little thing and yeah. your car engine's going to blow up. It's not a matter of like, if it does, it's when it does.
1: Yeah. And so... I was driven off ego for a long time. Like I, I my ego was my I mean everybody has ego. We have healthy ego, you know. Then we have the the beast ego, you know, whatever. <laughs> what I call it the the angry ego. And I was, t- I mean, look at my profession. I mean, I mm-hmm. was in radio. Like, I, I had this need to be loved. and Well, talk I- about
2: having to put a smile on your face oh, absolutely! Constantly. You have to perform all the time.
1: I, I set myself in these conditional loving situations, and I was driven off my ego. And then my ego was busted when my husband had an emotional affair. And on top of the trust issues and things like that, but my ego was my protector. That was my, that was my... Um, coping mechanism i relied on my ego my ego protected me and i never let that seal break and then when it broke it all went downhill after that and then here i am in raw form trying to pick up the pieces but do it in a healthy way of processing it well with that came weight gain
2: well, and look at a all lot the of physical meltdowns. and health issues you have. So yeah, with that absolute. TED Talk.
1: The rev, the revving up you're talking about. Well, and you that, can't and the, be and up. In this TED
2: Talk, it's... Um, What's it called? Uh, how Childhood Trauma Affects Health Across a Lifetime. And it's uh, Nadine Burke Harris. And this okay. is one that like my therapist showed us some of our trauma groups. And she, her big thing is she talks about an ACE score. So the ACE score is your adverse childhood experiences, and that includes any physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. If you had parents that had mental health issues growing up, you just were around things that weren't stable, um, there's a whole test you can take. It's not a fun test to take, but everything that you check yes to is a point. And so one point is one yes. And so there was a whole study that was done that she goes into about how they took this whole group of children and people, And gave them this ACE test and this score. And she was finding that out of their study that was done, 67% of the population had at least one ACE score. Oh, wow. Like, almost, it's a huge number of had had at least one of those things happen in the last like few years, even. And they found that one in eight had four or more. And just having a score of four and higher will, it increases your chance of having pulmonary heart disease mm-hmm. like two and a half percent you're almost four and a half times more likely to have depression your likelihood of committing suicide or having suicidal thoughts is 12 times higher with just a score of four or yeah. more and so the category I kind of see you falling into is I know little little parts of your story is if you score a seven or above you're triple the risk of just developing lung cancer and heart disease yeah. Just that, just by that alone, no other factors, just having had enough trauma that you can score seven or higher, you're three times as likely to get these physical conditions. Like yeah. your body holds emotion. Your body remembers. Oh,
1: absolutely. So I, like
2: with yourself, I'm like you get all these physical ailments that come out because your body can't handle like that. Your adrenaline's been going for so long. It wrecks yeah. your body. Absolutely. And I didn't yeah. have childhood trauma. You know, I'm mine happened in a very short amount of time. It all yeah. happened within five years. Like mine was just... Well, that like compact little time, but you had it from.
1: I said. So I, I've I said this. I said this many times this month during this series already. I came out of the womb in that environment. I mean, I really did, and it's been. I've been revved up ever since. I'm aware of it. I'm aware of the connection to my health issues. I'm aware of it that it's connected to. Possibly, you know, my endometriosis, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, A lot of
2: people aren't though; they just they have no idea. They don't think that's an actual, like, legitimate connection.
1: I just know that I need if, if the environment's toxic, the people are toxic. They need to be removed from my life mm-hmm. immediately. I have zero tolerance. I have zero tolerance for toxic behavior. See you later. You are not welcome in my life, and that's and that includes family. I don't care who you are. I don't care how close you are in the bloodline. You're out. It's hard if to you're get toxic. You're though. out. Yeah. You kill the flow, you got to go. That's what my husband always says.
2: Oh, I like that. That should be a t-shirt right there. (laughs) My
1: husband's brilliant.
2: (laughs) You kill the flow, got to go. It's hard because a lot of people with trauma are codependent. Yes. And so they attach to toxic people and they feel bad leaving them. And that's my joke. My roommate always tells me. She's like, you love broken boys. I'm like, yep. You know what? um, And and
1: see, I'm the opposite of that. Not
2: anymore. But I still like it's the people who've been through hard times. Like, that's how I looked at it. I'm like, I like guys that... And people who've like seen shit and have come out the other side, but yep. that was our joke for so long. Because She's like, "You like to see how red the flags can get?" <laughs> like, yeah. Yep. And that's they listening to you. I'm anymore. cringing
1: as you've been talking, telling me I'm an story, I'm idiot. Like, I'm like, No, you're no, you're not. I was. You're when it not. Came to that I was like,
2: oh my gosh! I look back and it really is like, how red can we no, see? maybe if naive the flag would gets? have
1: been. Maybe naive, but you were super young at so that trusting. time, trusting. Like, you, and yeah. I wish
2: I could even be. Less trusting as I am now. I wish maybe, hopefully, that would have helped a little bit, but I still just, I want to see the best in people. I don't want to believe that I had people are the opposite. I thought, are bad. I thought everybody, I
1: thought everybody, I had the complete opposite. I thought everybody was bad. You can't trust them. I put a smile on my face. I navigate in a very general general um, level, but you you could never get close to me. I, I cut it off. Like, I, I, I didn't sabotage anything. I just didn't even allow it to happen. And I love this, um, I shouldn't say I love it, but. The song that always um, holds true to me and who I am as a person is that Big Sean song. I don't mess with you. But the other <laughs> word.
2: Oh my I'm gosh. not kidding you. I forgot like, about that, that song. That is my
1: forever theme song because if That's you are funny. messing up my life and you are toxic, you're out. And any red flag, you're out. I'm bouncing. I'm gone and I will I go no that. contact with Can you within... make
2: that a drink for me? Can <laughs> I drink that? I need you don't need more a of drink. That still no i need need a shonda power drink (laughs) to help me kick people (laughs) out more
1: (laughs) you don't. i'm not done yet i'm not done healing you don't want anything that i have to give i'm still very uh i'm still very fresh so
2: it's it's taken so much but i just at this point i really am i'm proud of where i've come from just because i have kind of gone through the phases of grief like i kind of I was really sad and upset. There's the whole denial. I was so angry for a really long time. I was so angry about, and I misdirected the anger. I was so angry about what I was put through. I was even angry at that little family I had in mind. I was angry for them at a long time. He's like, how, how could they put a 21 year old in that situation? They should yeah. have known better. I mean, I had so much anger for a really long time and it's nice to finally be able to let that go and just look back and be grateful mean, um, because especially with them and that family, that's that's a situation that uh, definitely killed me ever wanting to do hospice as a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm done. I I can't do this. I can't do caregiving anymore. But I mean if they if I had to go back and do it again, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I, yeah. I would never say no to them and I'm I'm so grateful that I was able to be there and I have those lasting relationships because I had a conversation with this girl's mom when I had first moved in, and I told her, I love you. I love that we're best friends, but our relationship is temporary. We Mm -hmm. both know that. I said, I'm here for your daughter because I'll have her, that relationship for For the the rest rest of of my life. life. And so I'm here for her because she's going to need me. And she does. And it's it's hard. She's about to graduate high school, actually. And that makes me want to throw up. (laughs) Because I'm like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) you're too old. Stop growing up. Like, she has her first job and it makes me sick. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Like can you can you not age like that? You had a birthday last year. No more. You're done for a little Wait bit. Wait till you
1: become a mom. No, I'm okay. <laughs> it's I'm telling you what. It's the most rewarding yet, just stressful. Like oh gosh, please slow down. It's the just time. hard
2: because that's one of those things that I look at with her, especially because she like when she started high school, she called me crying that summer because she's like, how am I supposed to go through school without my mom? Uh, and I I see down the line like this is always going to pop up. I said she doesn't even think about. Her first date, she's not going to have her mom for her first date. She's not going to have her mom for her first kiss. Her mom's not going to be at her wedding or yeah. there for the birth of her first child. I mean, I see her whole history and her whole future.
1: Yeah, it's going to hit And her. I know what's
2: coming up. Yeah. And so I just am grateful, too, that to be in the place that I'm at now mentally because I used to feel so much a lot of shame for my drinking because I was just thinking that her mom is looking down at me Like and probably doesn't want me around her daughter because I was such a mess and doing so many bad things that I just had this in my head that I am not someone that should be around her and I couldn't be there for her like I wanted to be because I was in an emotional place to be able to help her more like I should have and like I wanted to. And so to be in the place I'm at now where I can actually hold the job down and not, you know, blow it because I can't handle talking to people. I get so triggered, you know, I can actually have a high stress job and handle a lot of things. I can actually live like, you know, on my own, I am sober. I can talk to her when she, when, so that way, when she does have these things come up later in life, like I actually know a place I can help her handle it now because I've been given tools to handle my own like trauma and stress in situations because I've been given so many tools that I can use. Now I get to help her with those tools yeah. and I, I wouldn't have been able to do that without the situation I'm in. Um, and it really is, it helps me relate to a lot more people. And I really, I really don't judge anybody. I didn't really judge people before, but now I really just don't because you never know what someone's going through. And a lot of it's like, if you've named it, and I've kind of did it anyway. And so yeah. I just, you could, like, it doesn't have to be like the end. I mean, it can get better. And I really never thought it actually would. And it's taking you like two and a half years of therapy to actually get to a stable place. But like, I actually am, I'm stable.
1: And you said the magic word therapy. And we've, we've said that many times during the series so far, mean this is the third episode into the series. And again, we're not professionals. We, we encourage everyone to get the help that, you know, that you need. And that is starting with a therapist or starting with your medical provider to get you, I guess, direct you in the right direction. Um, I know therapy for me has been oh my gosh it's been so helpful for you it's been yeah. super helpful um, Rach I'm proud of you for coming on here I know this has been kind of nerve wracking I know we've we've been talking about this and prepping for this for a long time and I just really appreciate it I'm proud of you for talking about it I'm proud to know you and I heart you big time whoa hold up did you hear <laughs> on the next Intentionally Disruptive with Shauna McNeil Coming up next week is episode number four in the No Perfect People Allowed series. My friend Alex, she will join the podcast to talk about imposter syndrome. Boy, this is another one I deal with. We're calling the episode, I'm not the imposter, I know I am. That's next week on Intentionally Disruptive. Ooh, that's a little taste of what's to come next week on Intentionally Disruptive. This podcast is all about everyday people sharing their story, their triumphs, because, I mean, we're all broken. Every single one of us are broken, and a constant work in progress. And this is all about people helping people and you helped me today.
0: Intentionally Disruptive is presented by Microbe Formulas. Visit us at microbeformulas.com.